Welcome to WRFG Atlanta, 89.3 FM on your dial. Next up, Alternative Perspectives, Atlanta's only queer radio hour. Hold on tight. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, this is WRFG Atlanta, 89.3 FM. By the way, the R, the F, and the G stand for Radio Free Georgia, which is what we are all about here. Uh, welcome to Alternative Perspectives. This is Atlanta's only local radio hour devoted exclusively to issues affecting Atlanta's queer community. I am your host, Greg Bosson, and thank you so, so much for listening. Uh, I am excited about the show tonight. We have an author by the name of Samuel Clues Hunnicky, or Hunnicky. I'm sure I butchered his name, so Sam will correct me once I start speaking with him in a few minutes. Uh, Sam is a professor, and he specializes in European history, and in particular, Germany, and even more particular than that, uh, the queer community in Germany. Uh, through uh, beginning in the 19, well, through the 1900s, I guess. And specifically, he has written a book that chronicles gay life in Eastern Europe versus Western Europe after the Cold War. The book actually has a chapter on what life was like for homosexuals and the like, beginning in around 1900, 1920 and goes through the uh, end of the Cold War and after. But the primary purpose of the book is to describe what it was like to be gay in a dictatorship, Eastern Germany, versus a democracy, which is Western Germany. And I think listeners will be surprised to learn which is more difficult. But uh, I will save that for our discussion. I'm very excited about it. One of the reasons is because I'm Jewish myself, and my heritage is from Eastern Europe, and in particular, Germany and Eastern Germany. So I'm excited to hear from Sam to see what he has to say. But before we do that, news of the queer. Uh-uh. I know that's right. Oh, no, she didn't say what? I thought I would start with something nobody cares about. <laughs> But I feel like it's a service to the community to let you know what the latest COVID stats are. Don't roll your eyes. It'll only take a second. You know, we have an Omicron subvariants that are going around. They're much more contagious. One person usually will spread it to 10 to 12 people. However, it is much less virulent, which is good news. Hopefully that pattern will continue, but I still think it's relevant for you to know. Uh, the seven-day average as of Sunday was 934 new cases in Georgia a day. That's the seven-day average. And just to give you some context, that is down from 16,297 cases a day back in January. So, so far, we're heading into the summer when things seem to calm down. So hopefully this is the beginning of a trend where we may have cases 
but uh, there won't be as many people dying from it or getting very sick. Hopefully that is the case. Have some sad news about Project Q. So Project Q has been in existence for 14 years, Project Q Atlanta in particular, and this is an online magazine that gives good information and news about what's going on in Atlanta's queer community. And they are going on hiatus. After 14 years of highs and lows, they are taking a break. They're calling it a break. Uh, And this is after, in the summer of last year, 2021, the founder, Matt Henney, accepted an executive editor position at the news outlet out of the state. And the co-publisher, Mike Fleming, pressed on for about a year also battling cancer and his treatments. So after all of that, uh, the the uh, organization has decided to go on hiatus. So I'm sad to see that happening. It's actually where I get a chunk of the news, but uh, it's uh, a sad a sad day. But uh, congratulations to Project Q for 14 years of good work. Two pieces of good news uh, before I get to the bad news, uh, and that has the good news comes from President Biden out of the White House. Two particular appointments. One, uh, Biden announces Karen Jean Paris as the new White House press secretary. The White House announced last Thursday that Karen Jean Pierre, not Paris, but Pierre, has been promoted to be assistant promoted to be assistant to the president and White House press secretary. Uh, She's been the deputy secretary now underneath Jen Psaki, who will depart on May 13th. The thing that is so cool about Karen Jean Pierre uh, is that she will be the first out black gay individual holding this honor. So she's not the first black woman to hold the position as deputy White House press secretary. That honor belonging to former President George Herbert Walker's Bush deputy White House press secretary, Judy Smith, in 1991. She's also not the first openly gay person to brief the press. Eric Schultz served as deputy White House press secretary during the Obama administration in 2014. However, she will be the first black and lesbian Deputy Press Secretary. So congratulations to her. Uh, In addition to that, this happened uh, about a week and a half ago. President Biden Biden has named Anna Rees, who is an attorney at the D.C.-based law firm Williams & Connolly, uh, for a seat on the federal court in D.C., making her the first Hispanic woman and the first out lesbian who would ever serve on the court. The White House announced this was a week ago, uh, Wednesday, so the Wednesday before last. Rees was among the five picks in the latest round of judicial nominees announced by the White House, which brings a total number of announced federal judicial nominees in the Biden administration to 95. Rees publicly identifies as a lesbian, the White House official said. Rees, who immigrated to the United States as a child, has worked as an attorney at Williams and Connolly since 2001 and has been a partner at the law firm since 2009, according to her White House bio. 
So congratulations to her. So, and I will say that there are many on the right that think that it is nothing to be excited about just because somebody who's gay or somebody who's black or somebody who's Latino um, gets into a position of power. They think it's nothing to be excited about. Well, of course, it's easy for them not to get excited about it um, if you happen to be a white man who's been in power. <laughs> so um, anyway, enough of that. Let's move on to the bad news. Governor Kemp signs anti-LGBTQ legislation into law. Uh, this is unfortunate. This happened on Friday, April the 29th. Governor, Governor Kemp signed HB 1084. The Protect Students First Act, HB 1178, the Parents' Bill of Rights Act, and SB 226. So it's actually three laws. Um, Let's go through each one. HB 1084 creates an athletics committee with the authority to ban transgender youth from playing on sports teams aligning with their gender identity. The bill also bans the teaching of divisive concepts about race in schools. During the bill signing, Governor Kemp said the bill would put students and parents first by putting, quote, woke politics out of the classroom and off of the ball field. So guess what? Apparently, if you want to help someone feel good about themselves or want to teach somebody what really happened in this country, uh, that's not something that's appropriate for the school. So that's shocking. Uh, Brian Kemp has the opportunity to emulate his fellow Republican governors in Utah and Indiana who saw through efforts in their states to limit the access of transgender young people to sporting activities and vetoed these measures. Uh, but government, Governor Kemp, not interested in helping uh, with that at all. So All right, he's going to let it sail on through. So that's the one bill. Uh, That's HB 1084. HB 1178 allows parents to challenge any material taught in school, including LGBTQ content. SB 226 would give school principals the power to ban obscene books from the library. According to NBC News, more than two dozen states, including Georgia, have banned books in the past nine months. With banned books, including Gender Queer, a memoir by non-binary author Maya Kobabe, The Handmaid's Tale, and Under My Hijab, and Beloved by Toni Morrison. The Human Rights Campaign Fund uh, recently finished a survey that found Americans overwhelmingly opposed censorship and book bans. 87% do not think books should be banned for discussing race or slavery. 85% don't think they should be banned for political ideas you disagree with. And 80 3% don't think they should be banned for criticizing U.S. history. That's nice. I'm glad that um, that's what Americans think. Unfortunately, we have people in our state legislatures due to gerrymandering and due to Democrats not getting out to vote. Uh, and uh, therefore, people in the state legislatures are taking our rights away. We are under attack. And I think that it's only going to increase uh, as the Supreme Court is poised to overturn Roe versus Wade. All right. So that's really sad. But I think really the answer to this is to 
get out there and vote and support a candidate who is against this type of legislation. We're basically going to have to take over state legislatures around the country to stop this onslaught. It's a big, tall order, folks. All right. And I guess the other thing that I really wanted to go through, this is something I've been meaning to do, but I have not done, but I'm going to start doing it now, is to give everyone a little bit of idea of an idea about what's going on in this city uh, related to queer events. So uh, tomorrow on Wednesday the 11th, Wussy returns with its monthly campy feature Fantastic with the 2000 classic Coyote Ugly. Uh, this is a movie uh, in glamorous 35 millimeter starring Piper Parabo, Tyra Banks, and Melanie Linsky. This is at the Plaza in Atlanta, 7 p.m., Plaza Atlanta. Uh, Thursday, throwback Thursdays, 8 p.m. at my sister's room, lesbian bar. Uh, On Saturday the 14th, so this is this weekend, the LGBTQ-themed booty candy play opens at Actors Express. Join Sutter as he propels through a kaleidoscope odyssey through his childhood home, church, dive bars, seedy motels, and one riotously funny phone conversation about very inappropriate baby names. This is one of the most acclaimed satirical comedies in decades. Booty Candy is an audacious series of subversive vignettes that explore what it means to grow up gay and black in America. So uh, that is going through June 12th at this point. And PFLAG, a support group for parents and families of LGBTQ children, meets in person 2.30 to 4 at the Spiritual Living Center of Atlanta on Sunday, May 15th. Uh, And then uh, Monday, May 16th, Trans and Friends is a youth-focused group for trans people questioning their own gender and aspiring allies providing a facilitated space to discuss gender-relevant resources and activism around social issues. This is 7 to 8 for youth and 8 to 9 for adults at Karis Books and more. So that takes us through uh, next Monday. I'll do Tuesday as well. Uh, On May 17th, a week from today, is National Day Against Homophobia, Transphobia, and Biphobia. And in the light of Outfront Theater's presentation of Homos for Everyone in America, and in anticipation of the Atlanta Opera's production of As One in June, the two organizations, I assume Outfront Theater and the Atlanta Opera, uh, are teaming up to host a conversation on transgender, bisexual, and gay representation in the arts called Community Conversation, Intersectionality, Queerness, and Art. This is at 7 p.m. also at Out Front Theater. All right, so uh, that is what's happening. And with that, we will be right back. You're listening to WRFG Atlanta. To become a WRFG supporter, please visit WRFG.org. General Secretary Gorbachev, If you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. 
Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. WRFG Atlanta 89.3 FM streaming around the globe at WRFG.org. Uh, uh, and you are listening to Alternative Perspectives. I am Greg Bossin, your host. And Alternative Perspectives is actually Atlanta's only local radio hour devoted exclusively to issues affecting Atlanta's queer community. Um, and as I said before, and I still am, your host, Greg Bossin, and thank you. Uh, so much for listening. So on tonight's show, uh, we have an author uh, by the name of Samuel and uh, Sam. Do I call you Sam? Actually, yes, I Sam's read, great. Okay, so and um, and your name is is it Klaus? Clues. Clues. Hunicky. 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 Yeah. Uh, Samuel Clues Hunicky, um, who is an assistant professor of history at George Mason University. Um, historian of modern Germany, and he is broadly interested in how everyday life intersects with and shapes the relationships between citizens and states. His research focuses particularly on the sexuality, well, the history of sexuality in the 20, in 20th century Germany, including queer political activism, l- lesbianism in the Nazi area, era, era, not area, uh, and the history of gay suicide. So, um, and sp- in particular, he has written, and I believe this is your first book. Is this right? Yeah, this is my first. Okay. okay. And I, now I forgot. Am I calling you Sam? Yes, Sam's great. Okay, cool. All right. Okay. All right. Uh, so his book is called States of Liberation, uh, Gay Men Between Dictatorship and Democracy in Cold War Germany, which is of particularly in- interest to me, first of all, because I'm Jewish. Uh, second of all, I'm gay. I've actually never been to Germany, Sam, believe it or not. Oh, well, you have to go. Berlin. Yeah. Berlin's a great city. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's it's interesting. My heritage, I guess, like if I, I'm 99.8 Ashkenazi Jew, and if you did, I did the 23andMe thing, mm-hmm. and I am in Eastern Europe, you know, like like around Latvia, like it's just this oh, yeah. tiny little area, and that's me, um, like which suggests inbreeding perhaps, or you know, <laughs> purity, depending upon how you look at it. But anyway, the, <laughs> the um, but anyway, so, uh, but I think from there, you know, my genetic uh, stream or whatever you want to call it uh, moved over to like Poland and Germany and Russia mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So anyway, uh, but uh so you have written this book and this is the first book you've written. So, um, 
I, I probably, I'm sure, I don't know if anybody has asked you this, but before we get into the topic of the book, um, writing a book is tremendously difficult. Do you like writing? Or I is do it, like, do you? I do like writing. I, I don't think I would be a history professor if I, if I didn't like writing. <laughs> um, so so this, this is my first book, but I've written plenty of other, you know, uh, peer-reviewed journal articles. I write a lot for sort of more popular presses. So I'll do a, I do a lot of book reviews. Um, I write essays for places like Boston Review or LA Review of Books. Um, so I, I, I really like writing. And how long did this project take you? Whew. Uh, I started thinking about this topic and researching this topic in 2015. So all in all, it took about seven years yeah. from sort of conception to publication. Yeah, yeah. And um, another thing I just want to say, because you are a professor, uh, mm-hmm. you are a teacher, you're a history teacher. And yeah. I will tell you two things. Um, I don't know if what your experience was like, but when I was in high school, um, my anybody who taught history was a coach. And so <laughs> they were horrible. And so I grew up hating history, thinking all history is, is memorization for tests, and I can't stand that. And so mm-hmm. I didn't want anything to do with it. Um, but as I've gotten older, I realize history is completely fascinating. And as you travel, which I love to do, it, if, without a historical context of what you're looking at, it just it, you don't really get to experience the world. Oh, yeah. And I think, you know, one real difference between high school in, in or high school history is so often as you're saying sort of just you know dry dates and names and there's i think oftentimes you know students don't see the connection and i was really lucky in high school i had fabulous history teachers who who were really i mean really loved the topic and really made it come alive for us um but the the sort of changes that when you get to college and if you take history courses in college it switches from, you know, names and dates to interpretation and to thinking about, okay, why does all this matter? Um, And ultimately sort of why or how does the past shape the world that we live in? Um, And there's so many examples, right? And I think the the battles over history teaching that we're witnessing in our own country right now uh, are sort of, you know, proof that that, (laughs) that these things matter. Um, Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. uh, Yeah. That's a, that's a, um, that's a whole other series of shows. Um, but <laughs> yes. it's, in my view, ultimately, history, a good history teacher is a good storyteller because it's storytelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, and how can that not be interesting? You know, yeah. unless you just can't tell good stories. So anyway, well, but let's let's move <laughs> on. I'm completely um, going off on a tangent here, of course. Uh, so you actually were born in Kansas. So um, I was I, actually, I uh, was born in Indiana, okay. but raised for the most part in Kansas. Okay, but I assume yeah. you have German ancestry, and, and you went to Germany at nine, mm-hmm. what that was your first time? Yeah, yeah, so way back when I have German ancestry, I mean, um, I think my sort of father's forebears came in the in the late 19th century from um, a village outside of Bremen, which is a, a town in the north of Germany. Um mm-hmm. So, so no like immediate German connections, but then, yeah, as, as you mentioned, when I was nine, my family moved to Germany for about six months and we lived in Bonn, which was the capital then uh, in, in the late nineties. And that is sort of how I started learning German. 
I continued learning German after I came back to the States and just sort of fell in love with the language and the culture. Uh, I started reading German literature like Thomas Mann, uh, who, who we were talking about earlier, and uh, and just sort of pursued that interest through college and then into a PhD. Oh, wow. So this was your, your PhD was in uh, German history, like, I mm-hmm. guess... LGBTQ history or? Yeah, so so my sort of official field that I studied um, for my PhD was, was modern European history. And within that, I specialized in German history and history of sexuality. Uh, and so this, the, this book, this book of mine um, started out as my PhD dissertation. Okay. And then, you know, I spent several years after I got the PhD revising it and sort of turning it into a, a publishable book. All right. All right. Well, let's get into let's get into the details a little bit. So um, the book looks at um, uh, life in Germany starting when around 1900, late 1800s, perhaps. So the main focus is really after World War Two. But there's sort of a first chapter that starts around 1900 and sort of takes you up through uh, the 1920s through the Nazi era, and sort of by the time you get to the second chapter, you're in sort of 1945, 1950. Okay, uh, yeah. And I want to spend some time about that, but I do with that, but I do think it's really important um, that one of the things that uh, I did not know uh, <laughs> was that there was um, a, a a a movement, a gay rights movement in Germany in the 1920s. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Germany Germany has the first gay rights movement in history, um, and and for a long time, homosexuality and queerness uh, are really associated with Germany. So, um, you know, the French and the British will refer to homosexuality as sort of the German vice. It's it has this weird association, and in part, it's because a lot of the first uh, sexologists, people who study human sexuality. Uh, come out of Germany. So you have people like Richard von Kraft Ebing, uh, Magnus Hirschfeld, who's a prominent sexologist, and many of them aren't just studying human sexuality, they're also advocating for changes to the law. Uh, And so in particular in Germany, there's this law that bans uh, sexual activity between men. And a lot of these people advocate for the repeal of that law. And so that's sort of what gets this first gay rights movement started. It's essentially around repealing a sodomy law that existed in Germany. Um, and interestingly, this is this is the context where the very word homosexuality comes out of. It's invented in the 1860s by uh, a Hungarian Austro, uh, Austro-Hungarian writer. Um, and so it's 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 a German word, homosexualität. Um, that then really? obviously gets yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's, it's it, you know, it, it, it isn't even that old. It's, it's only from the mid-1800s. Uh, and, and then, you know, so this gets started in the, in the late uh, 1800s up through the, the early 20th century. And then in the 1920s, you have a new democracy in Germany after World War I, the Weimar Republic, which I'm sure um, you've, you've heard of. Uh, and this is sort of, you know, the Germany's version of the Roaring Twenties. And this gay rights movement really sort of amps up its efforts. Um, Magnus Hirschfeld, who, uh, if you've ever seen Transparent, uh, he makes a sort of 
cameo appearance in either the second or third season. Uh, and he founds this institute for the study of sexual sciences that becomes a major hub. Christopher Isherwood, uh, the, the British writer, he hangs out there. Um, you know, a lot of, of Cabaret, the musical, is based on Isherwood's writings and, and his sort of experiences uh, in, in Weimar, Germany. Um, you have the first sort of gay periodicals that get published in this period. You have a huge sort of flourishing cultural scene for gay men and lesbians and, and even some nascent trans movements. In the 20s. In the 20s. It's, because, yeah. when you, because when you're back in, if you go back to the United States, that certainly was not the case. We didn't really have a gay rights movement of any major short, the 30s, 40s, 50s, you know, not until mm-hmm. after Stonewall did it come in any sort of dramatic but that's yeah. amazing to me. No, it, it's really remarkable. And um, and essentially then the Nazis come into power in 1933 and, and crush it. Um, all of these groups and publications, they disband. A lot of these authors flee the country or they sort of go into what's called internal exile where they basically stop publishing anything or saying anything. Um, you have, uh, as, as you're probably familiar with, you you have an increase in prosecutions uh, against gay men under the sodomy law. They actually they they promulgate a harsher version of the law in 1935, two years into their rule, and this new law basically makes it much easier to get convictions. And so between 1935 and 1943, which is when the statistics we have drop off, you have almost 50,000 convictions of gay men under this law. I mean, which is just a mind-bogglingly huge number. And this uh, is the, the paragraph 175? Is yes, it's, it's called, called, exactly. It's called paragraph 175. It's a paragraph of the criminal code. Uh, and so this is, it's the same paragraph that has existed since the... Um, late 19th century in imperial germany the the nazis you know create this harsher version of it uh you also have around 10,000 men we think who are sent to concentration camps because they're gay um so there's this really brutal persecution of queer people in nazi germany between 1933 and 1945 okay and i want to i want to talk more about that um but i want to introduce you uh again for those people that are just uh uh, joining us, uh, and we are speaking with uh, Samuel Klus Hunicky. Hunicky, yes, Hunicky. Hunicky. I will get it right at some point. Um, about his new book uh, and his first book, "States of Liberation: uh, Gay Men Between Dictatorship and Democracy in Cold War Germany." And we will be right back. On Saturday and Sunday, May 21st and 22nd, 2022, from noon to 8 p.m., Community Aid and Development Corporation and the Atlanta chapter of the Malcolm X Grassroot Movement celebrates the birth of Malcolm X El-Hajj Malik El-Shabazz Omawale with the 31st annual Malcolm X Festival. Performances at this year's event include Masiki Scales and Common Ground Collective, Ross Kofi, Issues, Red Fidel, Strap, 
Guillombo Academic and Cultural Institute, Rastafunk, Abashaka, and more. The location for the Malcolm X Festival is West End Park, a.k.a. Malcolm X Park, 1111 Oak Street, Atlanta, Georgia, 30310. For vending and info, MalcolmXFestival.com. That's Saturday, May 21st and 22nd, noon to 8 p.m. Another public service announcement brought to you by your listener-sponsored and supported community radio. 89.3 FM Atlanta, WRFG.org, your station for progressive information and hand-picked quality music. And we are back. You were listening to WRFG Atlanta 89.3 FM. Uh, this is Alternative Perspectives, uh, Atlanta's only local radio queer hour. I'm Greg Bossen, your host. And we are um, speaking with Samuel Klus Hunicki, who is uh, an assistant professor of history at George Mason University. And he is also the author of States of Liberation, a book that came out earlier this year, uh, Gay Men Between Dictatorship and Democracy in Cold War Germany. So um, when we last left, uh, we were talking uh, about what happened um, uh, when the Nazis took power. Um, and, and as we all know, uh, there were plenty of uh, gay men and women who were persecuted. Um, but uh, let's, let's uh, move on to uh, what happened uh, after the war ended. And uh, first of all, what happened in Germany and, and, and then uh, how life was different on the east and the west mm-hmm. side, which I think is the main focus of the book. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, yeah. So, so basically, you know, for for those who, who maybe aren't familiar, Germany gets conquered in, in 1945. Um, it, it basically is just a complete wreck of a country. There's there's not even really a government left um, at the end of World War II, and it's occupied by the four Allied powers at the end of the war. And eventually, that turns into East Germany and West Germany. And East Germany is a communist dictatorship. Um, that lasts until the end of the Cold War uh, in 1989. West Germany is a liberal parliamentary democracy, and it's set up out of the French, British, and American sort of occupation zones. And that's sort of the the state that reunifies with East Germany in 1990. Um, and so in some ways, the Germany that we have today is is sort of a, an enlarged West Germany. Um, but so, so one of the real questions I had for this book was basically... Uh, how did life for gay people evolve over the course of the Cold War in these two different German states? And I entered my research with the assumption that I think a lot of people would have, which is that probably life was better in West Germany than it was in East Germany, right? We tend to think of life as being better in democracies than in dictatorships. And what I very quickly found was that that wasn't actually true, which is not to say that life was you know, a lot better in East Germany. It's just that it was a much more complicated story and it wasn't sort of easily parsed into these sort of, you know, black and white categories. And so in the immediate aftermath of the war, uh, we have this law, paragraph 175, that we've been talking about. And we have the Nazi version of it, which is a lot harsher than the version that existed before the Nazis came to power. 
And so each of these two German states, East Germany and West Germany, they have to decide what to do with this law. West Germany decides to keep the law, and they keep it for 20 years until 1969. And in that period of 20 years, they convict over 50,000 men under this provision. Again, this is a, a parliamentary democratic state, an ally of the U.S., um, and so there's this sort of perpetuation of the Nazi persecution of gay men in West Germany. And that law on the West side was like anything that you do that could be considered mm -hmm. promoting homosexuality or anything like that yeah. is a problem. Right, okay. exactly. Yeah. It, it, yeah. So anything, you know, there are cases of people who um, were seen holding hands or kissing in the privacy of their own apartment, and that is sufficient to get a conviction under this law. So it's it's an incredibly broad, capacious law, um, and that's why there are so many convictions. It's very easy to get a conviction under this law. And what the East Germans do, so East Germany as a communist country basically stakes its reputation on a rejection of fascism, on a rejection of Nazism. And so they basically say, well, this is a Nazi era law, and so we're going to get rid of it. And so they go back to the earlier version of the law, which is much harder to get a conviction under. Uh, and so we don't have precise statistics, but the sort of broad statistics that we do have for those convictions show that it's about a, they, East Germany convicted five times fewer per capita than did West Germany. Because I think it did is the, the Eastern uh, kind of law, you had to have penetration. In yes, order to exactly. Yes, yeah, so, that's, yeah. that's exactly it. So, so the distinction is that in the East, you have to prove penetration. Um, and that's obviously harder to prove in court. Um, and here's, so, an, here's an irrelevant but salacious <laughs> question. So, uh, penetration of, of any orifice? Of any orifice. Okay, just so, checking. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Even an ear or a nostril. Oh, <laughs> so no, okay. <laughs> I, um, I know of no cases of someone being convicted for having penetrated an ear or a nostril. Okay, all right, okay. But, yeah. Uh, but generally oral or anal sex would okay. be sort of, yeah. Um. And then, and then even in the late 1950s, so about a decade before West Germany reforms the law, East Germany passes a supplementary law that includes the provision that victimless crimes will no longer be considered crimes. And so in general, if the police find two adult men engaging in consensual sexual acts, they stop prosecuting those cases because those are considered to be victimless crimes. There are some exceptions like you know, if it's a, mili a member of the military or a member of the, of the Communist Party, then those are sometimes interpreted to be damaging to the state itself, and then they'll prosecute. But in general, by the early 1960s, uh, sort of adult consensual homosexual acts have stopped being prosecuted in East Germany. And so that's, it's a really striking divergence between Amazing. East and West Germany. Yeah, it, it it is just not what you would sort of expect. Now that's the that's the legal aspect, and not to not downplay yeah. the importance of that. But what what was the attitude in both countries around homosexuality? That's yeah. I mean, that's a great question. Um, I, you know, it's it's always hard as a historian to go back and figure out what ordinary people actually thought about anything. And you know, we, there aren't really good opinion polling 
you know, options at that point. Um, so that's always a tough question. My sense from the various sources is that in terms of popular attitudes about gay men, they're pretty similar in East and West Germany. You know, it's still something that's taboo. There's still a lot of discrimination outside of the legal aspect. Um, and so in a lot of ways, sort of everyday life for gay men looks very similar in these two countries. You have a lot of cruising, you know, you gay men would go to parks or public toilets or, or public baths were a popular place um, and, you know, cruise for sex there. Uh, and this happens on both sides of the wall. Uh, in West Germany, because it's a capitalist country, you have more opportunities for sort of uh, secretive gay bars to to open up in various cities. Uh, but those, I mean, it's not it's nothing like what we imagine as a gay bar today. These are sort of clandestine locales, and they're sort of surreptitiously serving queer people. Uh, they're they're subject to police raids frequently. Um, in East Germany, you have a few of these, but again, it's it's a socialized or it's a socialist economy, and so you don't have as much freedom or flexibility to just go and open a bar. Uh, and so in East Germany, what you have as an alternative to that is this sort of network of house parties where individuals would host, you know, tons of people in their, in their homes. And, and that was sort of how uh, queer people, especially in big cities like East Berlin, would socialize. Yeah, I would imagine it would be harder to, um, it'd be a little bit harder to go after uh, gay people in East Germany as well, because they're in their homes versus yeah. in public spaces uh, in Western Germany. So, um, yeah, I imagine it would be very, very different. Yeah. No, it, that's that's a very good point. I mean, it it yeah, it it is much a much more private sort of sphere in mm-hmm. in East Germany because you don't have this sort of big capitalist sort of I don't know scene in which right. you can sort of you know right. It's you're you're more uh, in the public uh, in the public view, I guess. Yeah. So I mean, are, are we mostly talking about gay men in your research, or did you look at trans or? Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. yeah, so it, it um, when I set out to write this book, I really wanted to sort of make it as broad as possible. But especially for this early part for the 50s and 60s, most of the sources I found dealt with paragraph 175 with this law. And the law only criminalized male homosexuality. Really? And so yeah, yeah. And so as a result of that, most of the sources I found dealt with gay men. And so lesbians definitely are part of the story. They're part of the book, um, but it they're not as prominent a part. Um, there's certainly, you know, sort of trans issues that also come up in the book. There's actually uh, in East Germany, there's this incredibly colorful individual, um, Charlotte von Malsdorf, who is probably the most famous trans person in German history. Uh, she lived, She lived in East Germany an incredibly tenacious figure. She uh, starts living openly as a woman after World War II. She uh, is really interested in collecting sort of objects, um, furniture, art, so forth, from the late 19th century. And she just sort of by force of will gets the East German government to give her a decaying villa in East Berlin to house all of these objects that she's collected. And she turns it into a museum for the sort of art and furniture of the late 19th century in Germany. Wow. Uh, and so she, I mean, it's a to- totally bonkers story. And, you know, it, she's someone who's sort of 
known, but there's not, I mean, if someone wanted to write a biography of her, I think that would be a fabulous book, but. Oh, wow. Um, is that and, museum and, still around or did they not? It is. You no, know, it's still around. Oh, that's uh, so cool. Yeah. And she, you know, she, I mean, we'll, we'll probably talk about um, sort of gay liberation activism in the two Germanies in a moment, but, but she plays a big role in getting sort of gay activism, gay and lesbian activism started in East Germany. That's, that's, that's really amazing. So I guess um, the, the, I know there's a couple of reasons why the law was only for men, which, Mm -hmm. um, and maybe just mention that real quick so the listener can. Yeah. So basically, I mean, this is pretty typical of these laws across, it's not just particular to Germany, it's sort of across Europe and the U.S. Generally, these laws targeted men. And, you know, there, there are a variety of reasons for this, but in general, it has to do um, basically with misogyny, basically with the fact that women, you know, in the modern period, in the last several hundred years, um, have tra- quote unquote traditionally been seen primarily as wives and mothers, right? They don't, they aren't seen in this sort of misogynistic worldview as having a public role to play. Um, that they, you know, and they also aren't seen as having really independent sex drives, right? There's a huge historical sort of a tendency to just discount female sexuality. And so for all of those reasons, uh, male homosexuality is seen as a much more pressing threat. So gay men are perceived as being dangerous to youth, for instance. This is something we're seeing again right now in our own country, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It's this fear that gay men will go out and seduce young people and turn them into into homosexuals. Um, and, And because this you have this notion that women are sort of confined to the home. There's less of a fear of that. Uh, you have a fear that uh, the sort of homoerotic bonds between men will corrupt public institutions. So if you, you know, have men in the army or in politics or in business, you know, they'll favor other gay men, um, you know, that they'll build cliques together, that they're sort of naturally conspiratorial. Again, for, for those who believe that women uh, don't have a sort of public role to play, um, this isn't as much of a threat. And so there's all these various reasons, but in general, uh, these laws have tended to target men and not women. There's a, yeah. there's, a there's actually sort of a, a story, I, I, this might be an apocryphal story, but uh, when um, the British were passing a new sodomy law in the late 19th century, uh, they were questioning whether or not to include female homosexuality in it. And allegedly, Victoria, Queen Victoria, asked one of the government ministers uh, how it was possible for lesbian women to have sex together. <laughs> and so, you know, that sort of, I think that that ignorance and attitude sort of gets at or captures a lot of the reasons why female homosexuality was oftentimes not explicitly criminalized, even though, I mean, what's important to point out is that lesbians were still subject you know, to taboo and discrimination and other forms of persecution, even if uh, it wasn't explicitly criminalized. Yeah. Well, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, the long and short of it is, well, they're women, they're irrelevant. They're not threatening, you know, it doesn't matter. No, I mean, it's, it's, and that's sort of why, you know, at base, it's basically misogyny. Yeah. The, the, The other thing that I would add to that, which is just my own personal theory is that, um, uh, Gay men, um, it, it really homophobia and, and 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 
men who hate gay men are really, it's really misogyny to me. Cause it's like, you're a man is better than a woman. And you, and one of the things that women do is they like to have sex with men. So you're a man. So if you have a sex with a man, you're less than a man. You're a woman. So I hate you, Mm -hmm. you know, two women, you know, a lot of these straight men, you know, pull up a chair and get a beer and popcorn and watch them have sex. They get into, you know what I'm saying? No, I think, I think that's true. I think, yeah, I think that sort of misogynistic worldview, it does, right. There's an obvious hierarchy from that perspective and i think you're right that that male homosexuality sort of subverts that hierarchy um mm-hmm. in a way that that two women together wouldn't necessarily yes yes all right so um a couple more things i could talk to you forever um, <laughs> one thing i do want to get I, I, there's just a question that i had and that is I, I'm, I'm kind of curious about the inner the were the uh, the connections between the gay community, uh, the mm-hmm. queer community in Eastern Europe versus Western Europe during the time that the wall was up? Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you learned about that? Did that exist at all? Like connections, connections across the wall, you mean? Uh, yeah, or... like people, like uh, maybe just like what they thought of each other, you know, yeah. mystique associated with, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, so, no, totally. Oh. I So, so, you know, I think... East Germans frequently, especially in the sort of 70s and 80s, would look across the wall. And and in East Germany, it was very easy to listen to Western radio or watch Western TV. Um, You know, all of the sort of broadcasts reached across the wall. And uh, so they, they were aware of things like gay liberation, gay activism, and, you know, and, and the sort of gay subculture. And so there was an element of envy or of, of sort of wanting that. Um, and that actually is a big spur for gay activism, gay and lesbian activism in East Germany uh, in the 70s and 80s. Uh, what's interesting is that that activism in East Germany is actually, and this was sort of one of the most striking things that I found when I was researching this, uh, it's really successful in the 1980s. And you have the, just an incredible amount of sort of pro-gay, pro-lesbian um, policy and legislation that gets passed in the mid to late 80s in East Germany, which again, it's a dictatorship. You don't generally think of things like gay and lesbian movements as being successful in a dictatorship. Um, so that was really surprising. And what's interesting is that the Western gay and lesbian community takes note of that. They are aware of these changes going on and they start to uh, also have some of the same almost envy um, of what's going on on the other side of the curtain. So there's almost a grass is greener on the other side element to this relationship where they're both aware and it, it always seems better what's going on on the other side or, or in certain ways, it seems better. Um, you also have direct contact. So you have a lot of West, especially West Berlin activists who will actually go over the iron curtain and, you know, go on day trips to East Berlin uh, and hang out there, meet people, um, and so, so you not only have this sort of awareness, but you do have direct contact. Yeah, that's, that's, that's interesting. Well, the other thing is, it's like, again, Eastern Europe kind of takes the lead uh, yeah, when it comes no, to and, activism, which is another shocking. Uh, oh, it's completely, sh- yeah, yeah. No, it's completely shocking. And, and it, um, you know, by the end of the eighties, 
from a sort of policy perspective, East Germany has completely blown West Germany out of the water on these issues, right? They, they've equalized the age of consent. They have a policy that gay people can serve openly in the military. Um, they're providing state funding for books and movies uh, and other sort of forms of, of information about homosexuality. Um, you know, they, they've started sponsoring state sort of run or state-sponsored um, gay and lesbian organizations, um, organizations oftentimes that are run under the auspices of the Free German Youth, which is the official youth organization. So this would be like having, you know, Boy Scouts chapters specifically for for sort of young, you know, um, queer kids. Uh, and so it's just sort of, uh, it, it's quite remarkable that that all of this happens both in very short order and also, again, under a communist dictatorship. I'm going to ask, we got two more questions and then we mm-hmm. have to stop. One question I'm going to ask is, is why do you suppose that um, Eastern uh, and a dictatorship in, in this particular case, and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to put forth a theory as to why it is. And you could say, mm-hmm. wow, Greg, you're really smart. That's what I think. Or, yeah, you're completely off base. Uh, my thought is that in a dictatorship, it's a dictatorship. So the public can't really do much about the laws. There's not a lot of backlash. In Western Germany, like in America, the citizenry can rise up and be as racist or homophobic as they want to be. So that's my theory. Yeah, no, I think I don't think that's the only thing, but I think that's part of it. I think mm-hmm. that basically in West Germany and in the U.S. and France and the U.K. and whatever, activists, their constituency is ultimately the you know voting public, right? They have to convince voters that they're right. In a country like East Germany, where there are these limited forms of sort of civic engagement and activism that are available, so like petition writing is a huge thing in East Germany, um, but there the constituency is basically the government and sort of bureaucrats. It's a much smaller constituency that they have to convince, you know, of, of that they're right. And uh, these activists are are incredibly savvy about how they couch their demands and requests, and they basically are very good at making it seem like what they want to do is use their activism to fold gay and lesbian and trans people into socialist society. So they're very good about saying, we're not challenging socialism. We're not challenging the legitimacy of the government. All we want to do is become better socialist citizens. And over time, those arguments are persuasive to the bureaucrats and the politicians who are, you know, on the receiving end of their activism. Yeah, no, that makes that makes perfect sense. So at, in the end here, uh, the last uh, comment I have is, uh, and I mentioned this to you before mm-hmm. we started the interview because I wanted to give you time to think about it for a second, but what, what is it that you um, take from the lessons that you – or what lessons do you take in terms of how uh, activism, um, how successful it was mm-hmm. or how they did it in Eastern Europe versus Western Europe, democracy versus dictatorship? Mm-hmm. Uh, what lessons do you glean from that that can help um, the queer community going forward as we try and gain rights? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I always think of it, there's sort of a happy conclusion and a, and a depressing conclusion. And, and the depressing conclusion is that um, you know, democracies such as West Germany, which you know sets up as a successful democracy very soon after the end of World War II can quite brutally repress 
queerness. Um, and, and there's nothing essential about democracy that will be friendly to gay and lesbian and trans people. So that's sort of the depressing conclusion. And, and it means that I think we, we can't sort of rest on our laurels. We have to be constantly, I think, pressing and defending our rights. The happy it's harder. Con- it seems harder. It, oh, it does. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but the, the, the happy conclusion, this is why I, you know, I, I wanted to end on that, the sort of uplifting note, is that Thank even you. in really dire circumstances, such as a, you know, notoriously paranoid, inflexible communist dictatorship like East Germany, it is actually possible to have successful activist campaigns. It's possible to make positive change. Um, and, and that that is something I think all of us, especially as we're confronting all these horrible new homophobic and transphobic laws around the U.S. that are being passed, we need to keep that in mind that it actually doesn't take that much. It takes It can just be a few committed activists who make all the difference. Yeah, that's true. I, you know, I was listening to somebody yesterday um, talk about these new laws and um, uh, that are being passed. And um, I think that the key to um, fighting against these uh, laws is in the state legislatures mm-hmm. and it's something that nobody pays attention to. So yeah. you know, if you're out there and you're like, well, I'm really concerned, you know, they're about to turn over Roe versus Wade. And what does that mean for gay marriage? Mm-hmm. You know, and let me go ahead and make a donation to Planned Parenthood. And it's like, or the human rights campaign fund, maybe you should make a donation to a political campaign mm-hmm. and get involved. Maybe that might yeah. be a better use of your money or, or run for office yes. or start showing up to, you know, protest. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think, you know, we're so used to over the last, I mean, since I've been born, I've been used to things just sort of steadily getting better. And I think this sort of reflex of, we need to actually go out and defend our rights and protest for our rights and, and make sure that these politicians don't take them away. That I feel like that's maybe been lost or, or for people who are my age, maybe we never even had those reflexes and we need to learn how to, you know, how to do that. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I'm, a, a bit older than you, but, but things have been improving, you know, my whole life as well. And so um, I think what we're seeing now is really a backlash from Obama. I think we're yeah. still basically suffering uh, from people being mad about a black man being president. That's my own personal. Opinion. I think, I think that's a lot of it. I think there's, yeah. I mean, I think, I, yeah, I think that's <laughs> a big part of it. Unfortunately. Well, thank, well, thank you so much. Um, uh, for coming on the show. Uh, the book is States of Liberation, Gay Men Between Dictatorship and Democracy in Cold War Germany. Uh, and thank you so much, Sam, for coming on and congratulations on your book. Uh, and uh, again, thank you so much. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun and I cool. really appreciate it. Cool, cool. All right. Thank you so much for listening uh, to Alternative Perspective. Uh, stay tuned. Next up, we have Peach State Festival. See you later.